0: Hello and welcome to the first episode of the Mintz Exclusive Rights IP Podcast. My name is Dan Wanger, a partner here at Mintz. The modern economy is built on intellectual property as every economic sector depends on protecting IP in order to thrive. Whether the familiar branded products you buy, superhero movies you watch, the technology in the handset you carry, or the life-saving drugs you take, all of these industries rely on protecting innovative intellectual property. As we move into the future, and technology progresses at a rapid pace, we have to navigate the line between protecting IP and giving innovation to the public domain. Mint's attorneys successfully navigate this thorny IP landscape on a daily basis. For this podcast, we're going to bring you subject matter experts in a wide range of IP issues to give their thoughts and insight into the important IP issues of the day. We hope you will stay with us.
1: It is an absolutely breakneck pace, and you have to be prepared to get on your horse and start galloping within 24 to 72 hours.
0: Welcome to the Mintz Intellectual Property Exclusive Rights IP Podcast. My name is Dan Wanger, a partner here at Mintz in the IP Litigation Group. I'm joined today by my partner, Drew DeVogue, who's also in the IP Litigation Group. And we're here today to give some background information about the International Trade Commission and what it is, what it does, why it's here and what makes it different from district court and uh, why you should know about it. The ITC in the last 10 years has become pretty much a hotbed of patent litigation of all sorts, uh, but so much more happens there too. So what is the ITC and why should you know about it? Let's get into it. I'm here, like I said, with uh, my partner Drew, who is in the IP litigation group and he has done Probably close to twenty, if not more than twenty, investigations at the International Trade Commission under the authorizing statute that we call Section three three seven. Hey Drew, how's it going?
1: Dan, how are you? Thanks for having me. Great to be here to talk about a an issue near and dear to my heart and your heart as well, the International Trade Commission. Um, so as you noted, the ITC uh, has become increasingly important in the landscape of of patent litigation which we play in frequently. It's a creature of statute. It's an administrative body that's organized under Article I of the Constitution. So it's under the purview of the president. And as you noted, the enabling statute is referred to as Section 337, uh, which was enacted back in the 30s as part of the tariff act. And the body traditionally has been a protectionist trade body and it concerns itself with preventing unfair trade practices. How does that relate to patent litigation? Well, the uh, one of the, the pieces of IP or areas of IP that can constitute a complaint of unfair trade practices is patent infringement. And by that I mean if a patent owner believes that a party is importing, selling for importation or selling after importation, any goods that infringe a US patent, you can go to the ITC and seek a remedy provided you uh, satisfy certain jurisdictional predicates.
0: So with patent litigation, the focus that you just mentioned is is the ITC doing or capable of adjudicating anything else? Or are we just talking about high-tech patent stakes here?
1: No, that's a good question. The, the, the body does deal with a bunch of other issues as well. On the IP side, it's mostly focused on patents, but uh, you can bring trade secret actions. You can bring trademark and copyright infringement actions. Think the imported knockoff handbags uh, that I believe Louis Vuitton uh, brought a, uh, an ITC complaint seeking to stop the importation of, of the foreign knockoffs uh, under the copyright laws. And then there's a whole separate focus of the commission that deals with um, anti-dumping statutes, which is not something that that we focus on. But this is all to say that, that the commission is concerned with protecting industry within the United States from unfair Trade practices, uh, and usually those unfair trade practices um, are grounded in some sort of intellectual property rights.
0: Now, you just mentioned something that um, obviously is something <laughs> cl- close to what you and I deal with all the time. But this notion of a, of a protected industry. So, um, I think you mentioned something about uh, you know special jurisdictional requirements. So, what does it take to get there, and what do you have to do? In order to be a complainant at the International Trade Commission?
1: Great question. Um, one of the the ways I sometimes describe the unique nature of the ITC is by contrasting that to a normal district, federal district court patent litigation. In the federal district courts, all you need to show is that you own a patent and you've been uh, allegedly injured by someone's infringement. And there's some venue rules around it that have popped up over the last couple of years. But beyond that, if you have the patent and you're the owner or the exclusive licensee, you can go get redress in the federal district courts. At the ITC, there are some additional requirements, and chief among those is what we refer to as the domestic industry requirement. And that is basically the statute's way of enabling this protectionist view of industry within the United States. And classically, uh, the commission was interested in determining whether the patent holder bringing a suit under Section 337, filing a complaint, requesting that the commission institute an investigation into the alleged unfair trade practices, have a domestic industry of its own that was protected by the patent that's being asserted. Now, there's a lot of nuance in in how that piece of uh, ITC jurisdiction has developed over the years, but at its simplest, you can think of it as um, a patent holder brings a complaint at the ITC and requests that the commission institute an investigation into unfair trade practices. As part of those allegations, it has to show that there is a domestic industry within the United States in connection with an article or articles that are protected by at least one claim in each of the asserted patents. Classically, this was a uh, an inquiry where the commission looked at a patent protecting a widget and assessed how many people are employed within the United States who are stamping the widget on a factory using equipment that's based in the United States. and Is there uh, capital involved? Is there money invested by the patent owner in that domestic industry? Are they paying full-time employees to stamp those widgets? Are they investing in the uh, facilities? Are they paying rent? Are they amortizing equipment costs on which those widgets are stamped? That's sort of the classic domestic industry uh, paradigm. As I said, there's um, a bunch of nuances and, and the way that, that domestic industry requirement has developed over the years um, has added different layers of complexity, but at a high level, that is a jurisdictional predicate. Put differently, if you aren't able to satisfy the domestic industry requirement, you can't get the remedy that the commission offers.
0: Now, this is important because the fundamental difference between the district court and the ITC, as I see it, is the availability of meaningful injunctive relief at the ITC, which you can't really, it's not really an attainable remedy at this point after eBay 10 years ago or so, whenever that was. So is it, is it your view? Are you seeing or do you have any thoughts on how people, patent holders, the industry is views the ITC vis-a-vis injunctions? Is it going to change or, or is this the real power behind the International Trade Commission at this point for a patent holder or a trademark holder or a copyright holder? Is this ban on importations that we're, that we're talking about as opposed to anything else that you can get from a district court?
1: Absolutely. So you mentioned eBay. That was a sea change in patent law. And to your point, it's effectively gutted any ability of patent owners to obtain injunctive relief in the federal district courts. The remedy available at the ITC remains fully in force for those who can show that there has been a violation of Section 337, meaning a patent holder who can show that a valid patent claim that protects a domestic industry. Um, has been infringed by imported goods, and the primary remedy offered by the ITC is an order to Customs and Border Patrol to shut the border to further importation of those infringing goods.
0: Yeah, shut the spigot off. Shut the spigot off.
1: Absolutely. So if you're if you're uh, having discussions, for example, with large foreign electronics manufacturers, and you can credibly create anxiety that you may be able to turn off the importation of a stream of billions of dollars worth of electronic goods into the largest consumer market in the world, um, that can become a an incredibly powerful bargaining chip in licensing discussions, for example. So the availability of this robust relief in the form of an exclusion order or injunctive relief provides a pretty large stick in a way that is not available these days meaningfully in the federal district courts.
0: I want to ask you about some nuances in the ITC from the other side as a respondent when you find yourself in the ITC. But before we get there, I would be remiss if I didn't mention an issue that's near and dear to my heart and my practice, which are standard essential patents and how they work at the ITC. And if I'm not mistaken, I could be wrong about this, I can fact check it, but I believe that you were the quarterback of an investigation at the ITC that at this point has been the only ALJ finding of valid infringed claims recommending an exclusion order for a standard essential patent. So this might be a niche issue for a lot of people, but can you tell me why that's important and if you see that happening again in the future? There's a a
1: lot baked into that question. Um, But I will say that that I was uh, part of a team that successfully obtained a recommended exclusion order of a valid infringed claim of a standard essential patent that was the first such uh, recommended exclusion order since Ambassador Froman rejected the injunction that Samsung obtained against Apple I think in 2013, so it had been at least half a decade since anyone had done it successfully.
0: What's a um, recommended
1: exclusion order, as opposed to like what is that? Excellent question. So the commission is a group of appointed uh, commissioners. I think there are five or, or seven, depending on on how many are currently appointed and approved to the position. They basically take recommended findings of fact and conclusions of law that are compiled by the administrative law judges who actually do the dirty work. And so it's essentially a two-layer process where um, the parties in an ITC investigation go through uh, effectively a a 10-month procedural schedule from the filing of the complaint through the end of an evidentiary hearing, which is a full-blown trial in front of a a judge. There's no jury at the ITC, which is another critical difference between the ITC and the district courts. And then once the evidentiary record is compiled and the ALJ has heard all the testimony and received all the argument in the post-trial briefing, he or she then compiles what's called a recommended initial final determination. And that is sometimes an extensive uh, articulation of that alj's uh, findings of fact and conclusions of law and then a recommendation up to the commission as to what that particular alj thinks the commission should do in view of all of those recommended findings of fact and conclusions of law
0: so so what i basically heard is that the alJs are like their own little district court that makes a decision and then before that decision is actually enforced you get an automatic appeal to the commission, and the commission makes the final decision about whether or not this is actually going to happen.
1: I think that's a great, great way of describing it. Um, the commission typically gets a bunch of briefing after each initial determination issues, uh, and you can have parties requesting that the commission review certain aspects of the the decision that they don't like, and you know, there's cross briefing, and then the commission. Looks at what the ALJ did and looks at what the parties put in front of it, and it can decide, well, the ALJ got it right, and we're just going to rubber stamp it, not review anything. Or it can say, we think something about this case is worthy of taking a closer look at. And that's when the commission undertakes an actual review process, which may or may not result in a, a further written opinion.
0: Okay, so with that out of the way, you got this recommendation for an exclusion order from the ALG for a standard essential patent, from the ALJ, sorry, for a standard essential patent. Do you see that happening again? Or is that the end of it at that, at that point? Because people, standard essential patents are, are on the core of my mind on the core of a lot of practitioners' mind at this point because of their rampant importance in, in certain technology spaces.
1: It, it's a really interesting question because after the uh, Samsung Apple case in which the United States trade representative, which has a right of review uh, during what's called the presidential review period after an exclusion order is actually issued by the commission. After Ambassador Froman rejected that and said, no, we're not going to allow this exclusion order to actually go into effect. One of the things that he cited in his opinion, rejecting that exclusion order was the fact that the patents asserted in that case were essential to particular standards. There was a lot of conversation among practitioners and and commentators after that, uh, concluding, I think, prematurely that standard essential patents were effectively dead at the ITC. If you add into that equation uh, Samsung's admission that it went out and bought standard essential patents for the express purpose of excluding Apple's products from the United States. And that I think was a, a combination of factors that the Obama administration uh, simply couldn't countenance. But back to the the higher level question, I, I think the circumstance that we went through in the Netlist uh, versus SK Hynix. Uh, Investigation, which was the 1089 investigation, demonstrated that the ITC is the doors are not closed to the assertion of standard essential patents. I think it adds an additional layer of complexity, not least because sophisticated respondents will put on pretty robust RAND or FRAND related uh, defenses, which are viable at the ITC, but at least. Chief Administrative Law Judge uh, Bullock didn't find those arguments compelling and recommended an exclusion order up to the commission following trial in that case.
0: I personally am waiting with bated breath for the instance in which the ITC is going to, what I think, do what it should do, given a valid infringed claim with the domestic industry, standard essential or not, and issue an exclusion order. Whether there's political reasons to veto that under the presidential review period, I don't know. In the case of Samsung and Apple, I think it's perfectly appropriate to exclude Apple from the United States market based off of its infringement of a valid infringed claim with the domestic industry. In that particular case, maybe that's the politics of it where Samsung was the one making the claim provided a problem. But if Samsung had been an American company, would that have been any different? I don't know. But it seems like that would have been a different set of circumstances.
1: I agree. Um it, to your earlier point, the International Trade Commission is necessarily a political body um, and it concerns itself with international trade. The fact that it was a Korean company availing itself of the forum and trying to exclude products sold by the darling of Silicon Valley, there was a an additional overlay in that case for sure. I think um, I think I can leave it here with the comment that under the right circumstances, I see no reason why a standard essential patent claimant would not be successful. If it's a strong enough patent that's valid and it protects a a significant or substantial domestic industry within the United States, I don't see any reason why uh, the standard essential nature of that patent asset should preclude the ability to obtain relief at the commission.
0: Okay, so we talked a lot about the ITC from the view of a complainant or a patent holder, whether that's a trademark holder or a, or a patent holder or copyright or what have you. Can you give us some perspective on viewing the ITC from somebody who's just been thrown there as a defendant slash respondent and what that would be like?
1: It is an absolutely breakneck pace. And you have to be prepared to get on your horse and start galloping within 24 to 72 hours because once a complaint is filed at the ITC, um, there's a what's called a pre-institution phase, which is a 30-day window during which the commission assesses whether or not it's going to actually initiate an investigation. You do not have all 30 days to line up counsel and get your defenses in order You typically have uh, seven to eight days from the time the complaint is published in the Federal Register uh, to when the commission seeks public comment on the public interest, which is an opportunity for you as a respondent to weigh in as to why uh, the requested relief might potentially be adverse to the public interest. There's a set of four statutory factors that the commission looks at to assess whether there is an adverse impact on the public health and welfare, for example. And you have an opportunity to weigh in uh, if your accused products are, you know, implicate the healthcare system, for example. There may be overriding public health concerns that would suggest to the commission that um, they either should not institute the investigation or would be a reason uh, not to impose the requested remedy. And that happens immediately. Uh, So, you know, seven to eight days after a complaint is published in the Federal Register, which typically happens, uh, you know, less than a week after the actual filing of the complaint. And after that, you've got 20 days or so left uh, before the investigation institutes. You have to essentially get organized within a potential joint defense group if if you've been thrown into a group of, of other respondents. You have to start assessing the substantive merits of the case, get your arms around all the potential prior art uh, that may be implicated, additional defenses, both in law or equity, whether the there are potential arguments of prosecution misconduct on the part of the patent owner. Um, all of this takes significant diligence that has to be done essentially yesterday.
0: So move and fast. I, I, just go go as fast as you possibly can because exactly, you're not going to exactly. be able to do it later.
1: <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And it it it's incredibly it can be incredibly burdensome as a respondent because you're being asked to locate, you know, identify, locate, collect, and produce a ton of information on an extremely short timeline. So just for example, the typical uh, fact discovery period at the ITC can last as short as three months, which is a blink of an eye in the context of
0: sophisticated patent litigation. Yeah, so In the district court, you get a, a year and a half a lot of the time for fact discovery.
1: Exactly. And and just to put a fine point on it, in the district court, you get whatever it is, 30, 45 days to respond to interrogatories. In the ITC, you get 10 days. It's a big difference. Which to- even get your arms around what the questions are asking in terms of facts, let alone put together a, a coherent and competent answer is not a lot of time. So having having sophisticated counsel who knows the forum, appreciates the intricacies of the the rules is critical because if you get behind, you can find yourself in a really bad spot very quickly.
0: Well, that sounds terrifying from what you just told me, uh, about being a respondent in the ITC. (laughs) I I know we talked a lot about some of the things we talked a lot about were, were high tech related stuff, consumer devices, but really anybody, this can happen to any company that's bringing goods in from outside the United States to be sold here. So whether you're a consumer product company having your goods manufactured in China or India and importing them in or a power tool company having your power drills made in Vietnam or India and having that come in. These are all fair game. To be, or
1: or yeah. even components, even components. If you've got assembly manufacturing within the United States and the subcomponents are imported from outside the US, but they are allegedly infringing complainants' patents, you can be at risk of having your supply chain shut down. So for example, you know, electric motors that are incorporated in um steering systems in the automotive space, that's an example of of componentry
0: that could be put at risk. And if that doesn't come in to the factory uh, in Michigan for a car company, the whole the whole pipeline's gonna shut down because they can't they can't finish building the car. So that could be a pretty powerful inflection point for a lot of a lot of service providers and component providers because the car company, I'm sure is going to tell them, Go make sure that doesn't happen. <laughs> Go make sure there's no interruption in the flow of my components to build this car.
1: That's absolutely right, and we've seen, you know, firsthand, unfortunately, for other reasons over the last uh, year or so, the ripple effect that even you know minor supply chain disruptions can have on on the
0: overall flow of goods. I know from personally that I was supposed to get new windows in my house that I was redoing in four weeks, but it took eight because of the the problems in the component supply in the in the construction business absolutely. well do you have any other thoughts about the ITC you want to lay out now or um, or any parting suggestions thoughts this has been very informative
1: well appreciate appreciate the the opportunity to chat about it. It is something that we tend to live day to day. There's a lot of nuance and detail. Um, I noted earlier that the commission has its own very peculiar and detailed rules, um, both substantively and procedurally. Adding to that uh, layer of complexity is the fact that each individual ALJ has their own set of ground rules that govern the proceedings before them. So you could have two ALJs with very different procedural requirements throughout the course of a a case. So I'll, I'll emphasize again, if you find yourself interested in going to the commission as a complainant, or if you find yourself in the unfortunate position of being hailed into the forum as an accused respondent in an investigation, getting sophisticated counsel who understands the forum and the nuances, uh, both from a substantive and, and procedural standpoint, is absolutely critical because it's it moves so quickly, it's easy to get behind the eight ball. And once you're in that you know, disadvantaged position,
0: it becomes really hard to right the ship. And you certainly don't want to get behind the eight ball in the ITC because it's like drinking from a fire hose. You won't be able to catch up ground. Well, Drew, this has been really informative. I really appreciate uh, having this conversation. Thanks for coming and we'll see you next time.
1: Thanks for having me.